Blog Talk Radio. Good morning or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, around this rotating, burning planet. The Amazon is burning. The G7 is looking at an international crisis, a planetary crisis, because the unthinkable is going on, not on the other side of midnight, but as I've said over and over and over again, this strange time of night when we can discuss and talk and, you know, kind of handle anything it's kind of uh, matriculated into daylight, into, you know, 24-7. And we're going to be talking about reality, certain kinds of reality tonight. So let me me kind of give you a few news items that kind of will reinforce what uh, I and my guests are going to be discussing for the rest of the evening. We're going to be discussing the nature of reality, the idea that Maybe everything we're experiencing and living through is being written by someone, some software, some AI, some intelligence at some level. And we'll we'll get pretty specific as we go through the morning. So let me go through some of the news items that, oddly enough, kind of fill in that gap between what used to happen only at this time of night and what's happening now around the clock. For instance, Emmanuel Macron, who, of course, is president of France, at the G7 is calling the rainforest fires in the Amazon something like 70,000 fires. You heard me correct, 70,000 fires. And we're getting near the red line because the Amazon rainforest has long been considered the major carbon sink on the planet. The more forest, the more greenhouse gases are absorbed, primarily CO2, and sequestered. And then when those uh, forests are buried and sink and covered by silts and, and other, you know, rocky materials, they're basically locked away from the atmosphere and the rest of the biosphere. Well, no longer because with all those trees, those thousands and thousands of square miles burning tonight. It's the equivalent of several major megawatt coal-fired electricity-producing power plants belching CO2 from this carbon reservoir back into the atmosphere. Now, some numbers I've seen say that uh, the the kind of tipping point is when about 20% of this uh, Amazon rainforest is uh, strip mined or, you know, uh, clean cut or, you know, basically brought down to bare ground for agriculture and cattle raising and all that. We're at currently, according to the numbers, we're at 17%. And so these fires tonight 
burning in the Amazon, which can be seen, of course, from space, from the International Space Station, are not doing us any favors in this race against planetary change and global climate catastrophe. That's one data point, okay, but segues directly into the next one, because if you go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's banner, which is um, called, Are We Actually Prisoners in Someone's Hyperdimensional Computer Simulation? And you click on that banner, that takes you to the guest page for Daniel Pinchbeck tonight. Scroll down, and you will come to Radio Pictures and My Items. The Amazon house burning is item number one. Item number two is equally bizarre because remember I just mentioned the International Space Station? There is currently a an accusation that one of the former astronauts who was a mission uh, specialist on the International Space Station, her name is Anne McLean, her former partner, has accused her of committing identity theft by computer from the International Space Station's computers. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, at least not any longer. Which, of course, I mean, that's that's a bizarre headline that in any other reality, I never would have imagined that we would read. Well, it's right up there tonight. Item number three. The Russians, a couple days ago, launched a Soyuz spacecraft carrying the first Russian humanoid robot, whose name technically is Skybot F850. This is a full-scale humanoid robot that's going to be tested both inside and outside of the uh, space station for operations where you don't want to risk crewmen because every every spacewalk is kind of uh, dangerous. I mean, they make it look so easy. But in fact, you're separated from a hard vacuum by a few layers of a spacesuit and a, um, uh, you know, environmental support system. So on this mission, the Roscosmos Soyuz MS-14 spacecraft, which is carrying, of course, supplies to the space station, also carrying this humanoid robot. Now, it does not have a human crew on board, so it is part of an automatic docking system, which apparently yesterday failed, and they've tried several times. It's now in what's called a racetrack orbit that will allow it to conduct additional docking efforts about every 24 hours. They're going to try the next one sometime on Sunday night or early Monday morning, the 25th and 26th. Um, Again, the reason this is interesting is because this stuff has become so automated and so routine that the fact that it's not working and they do not have an alternate system where the space station can reach out and kind of take control and bring it in, you know, by astronaut command, they either have the automatic docking system or they don't. And apparently up until uh, tonight, they don't. And remember, there was an occasion about 20, 30 years ago, back in 1997, when one of these spacecraft got kind of away from the astronauts and plowed into the uh, Russian space station, causing really remarkable damage, and they had to close off entire modules. Anyway, they're going to try again 
to do this docking sometime uh, tomorrow night or early Monday morning. And on tomorrow night's show, we will uh, we will inform you as to the progress. Just another little data point. Okay, item number four. Click on item number four. This is not a joke. This is a graphic showing the President of the United States in the lower left-hand corner and a global view, a perspective view of the United States and Canada on the left and Europe on the right and little tiny islands south of uh, Sweden and Norway, Denmark on the far right, and in the middle this kind of large island covered in ice called Greenland. Well, of course, you've heard the whole brouhaha over the president, President Trump wanting to buy Greenland. And everybody has had a good chuckle because they don't understand that this, in fact, is something which occurred before. So if you go, keep scrolling down and look at item number five under radio pictures in my items. That's it. Okay, click on number five. This is a Time magazine article from 1947 reprinted here, which in fact shows you that uh, something's running. What is running? I don't want something running. Eh. No, we don't want something running. Um, why is that running? This is always bad when you have a... Uh, there There we are. There we are. Can kill that. Okay, good. Live radio show, you don't want intrusions. This is a very interesting article. It was um, based on declassified documents discovered by a, by a Danish newspaper in 1991. And there's a map in there showing the relative position of Greenland. Uh, there's a polar projection uh, showing Alaska, showing the USA, continental the United States, um, a Time magazine map, very good map. The reason this is important is because apparently right after World War II back in 1946, the president of the United States then, um, Truman, President Truman, wanted to buy Greenland for strategic purposes. At least that's what the um, the story said. Um, we wanted to put early warning radars that would warn us of, you know, Soviet Union bombers coming across the North Pole to bomb the United States. This was all part of the duck and cover that I discussed a couple, three weeks ago in our Apollo 11 50th anniversary tribute, which, by the way, we have now committed, uh, courtesy of John Womack, to a um, pair of YouTube videos and we'll make uh, uh, public and shortly in the next day or two how you can actually get to see those because we're going to do this as a test to see if we can put the other side of midnight up on YouTube and people might be able to join the program that way. Anyway, back to Truman. The idea was that um, he wanted to purchase Greenland from Denmark so that we could have bases and early warning radar and other, you know, military paraphernalia positioned as a kind of a way to look over the pole and see what the Soviets were doing in the way of uh, bombers or later um, long-range ballistic missiles. For some reason, I mean, they wanted to literally, it's in the story, they offered Denmark $100 million, which in 2019 dollars would be probably maybe a billion and a half, two billion in gold bars for the world's largest island. And for some reason, 
the Danes then turned Truman down as they've just turned down uh, Donald Trump. The difference is that Truman didn't throw a hissy fit and get all bent out of shape over the fact that Denmark didn't want to sell Greenland. I mean, it's got 800,000 square miles. And as I discussed last Sunday with uh, my guest, Thomas Williams, we were talking about a lost continent that in the Arctic had, had sunk for intriguing reasons, maybe 110,000 years ago. Well, Greenland is in this model, the remaining part of that ancient, ancient sunken continent. And so it occurred to me, given that we know there's really bizarre artificial ancient stuff at the South Pole in the Antarctic, and how do we know? Because I've got the film, and I have posted it. I actually put it for uh, Donald Trump into the presidential briefing. There's an incredible oblique shot from one of the C-47s, which is the military equivalent back in the 1940s of the DC-3. And they took color aerial films. And I screen grabbed one of the shots of some of the high mountain peaks that they, uh, Admiral Byrd and his company flew over as part of Operation High Jump back in 1946, in December 46. And on those photographs, I probably should sometime during the show put that photograph up on, on uh, Radio with Pictures tonight. I'll do that during the next break. Anyway, all, when looking out the window, taking these wonderful Eastman color films, you can actually see in the mountains where it's melted and the snow is blown away, the remarkable, obviously geometric outlines of some kind of ancient, ancient, ancient habitation in the Antarctic, in the mountains, at the South Pole. Now, in the model, as we discussed with uh, Williams last week, in the model that there's also stuff from that same era buried under the ice on Greenland, to which the United States, maybe a particular president, would be interested in going and finding and excavating and exploring and looking at the technologies or the libraries which had been there for over a hundred thousand years, it makes perfect um, secret of sense that this president, who we know is into this kind of stuff, the mainstream dismisses it as conspiracy theories, we know that he's into this, and is it possible that in watching the presidential briefing, he got the idea, well, I can't snag Antarctica because it's now basically owned internationally by an extraordinary interlocking international set of treaties. It's a no man's, no country zone. It's international through and through. But if Greenland is available, if Denmark wants to sell Greenland, then we can, if we own it, explore it, dig under the ice, look at the areas where the ice is incredibly melting very fast now, gushing rivers down through the center of the ice cap. I mean, Greenland is really, really interesting the more you look at it. We do have, kind of under a rental agreement, the farthest northern base of the U.S. military called Thule, a place called Camp Century, which is powered by a nuclear reactor and is buried under the ice 
So it's kind of hidden and protected from the elements. But you can't really go running around digging under the ice in Greenland without Denmark and Europe and a whole bunch of other countries kind of wondering, what are the Americans up to? So the only way that we could quietly, secretly look in our backyard in Greenland, because it's almost due north of us in a polar projection, would be if we could buy it. And the offer that apparently the president made to the um, premier of, of Denmark and the queen was we would give them a, a kind of a lump sum. I forget what the lump sum, but every year in perpetuity, which means as long as the United States lasts, we have offered to pay them $600 million. And the Danes turned us down, which raises in my mind the interesting question, what do the Danes know is there that they don't want us to know is there? And is this the reason why the president kind of flew off the handle and canceled his state visit that he was supposed to make on the way back from the G7 summit this weekend and created a kind of international brouhaha and is causing headlines? Now go to number six in my radio pictures and click on that. Because in this week alone, Trump has promoted the idea that he is the king of Israel. He's retweeted that he's the second coming of God. We'll leave that aside for a moment. Then he said that he's the chosen one. And all of this happened in the last week. And if I were in any other timeline, and you might want to take a look at what the Daily News did with all this on the cover in item number seven. If I was on any other timeline, I would say that we are victims of some kind of mad writer or mad programmer. Except this is supposed to be reality, and this is supposed to be the actions of the President of the United States, the leader of the free world, the leader of the nation with the largest GNP, with the largest, most effective military, with a series of global alliances that depend on stability and predictability. And of course, that's all gone out the window, ushering in the most interesting hypothesis. Are we in fact living in some bizarre simulation? And the programmer, kind of like that guy in um, Jurassic Park, has basically gone off the rails. And we are seeing all around us the result. I'm going to be talking tonight with Daniel Pinchbeck, an old friend of mine from New York. He's an American author currently living in New York City with a passion for understanding consciousness and how we can expand it to find our truth. Daniel is the author of Breaking Open the Head, a, a psychedelic journey into the heart of contemporary shamanism. And uh, uh, he also, uh, the book was designed by Lee Foucault. He also wrote 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, um, published in September of 2007. He's the co-founder of Evolver, a lifestyle community platform that publishes Reality Sandwich, an online magazine centered on spirituality, philosophy, and activism. Philosophically influenced by the work of anthropologist Rudolf Steiner, 
His direct experience and personal research led Pinchback to develop a hypothesis that shamanic and mystical views of reality have verifiable validity and that the modern world has forfeited an understanding of intuitive aspects of being in its relentless and almost obsessive pursuit of so-called rational materialism. Pinchback also served as executive director of the think tank Center for Planetary Culture, which produced the Regenerative Society Wiki. His essays and articles have been featured in the New York Times, the Esquire, Rolling Stone, Art Forum, the New York Times Book Review, the Village Voice, and many, many others. So without further ado, Daniel, welcome to The Other Side. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Well, tonight should be really intriguing because you have opened up um, a kind of a can of worms. Let me let me read something you sent out a few days ago that kind of triggered me to want you to come on and talk about this. You said, and I quote, the New York Times just published a bizarre op-ed by philosophy professor who argues scientists should avoid running experiments that might prove we are living in a computer simulation. Preston Green from Nanyang Technological University in Singapore fears that this would lead the overseers who are running our simulation to end it. Quote, if our universe has been created by an advanced civilization for research purposes, then it is reasonable to assume that it is crucial to the researchers that we don't find out that we're in a simulation. Green goes on, if we were to prove that we live inside a simulation, this would cause our creators to terminate the simulation thus destroying our world. And then Pinchback goes on, the jumping off point for this Rick and Morty-ish reflection is, of course, the simulation hypothesis put forth by Cambridge philosopher Nick Bostrom, a transhumanist. Bostrom proposes that a sufficiently advanced civilization would run many ancestor simulations, and therefore it is probable we are in such a virtual matrix. He believes physicists can determine whether or not this is true by seeing if the universe pixelates out at its edges. Elon Musk, among others, has given support to the theory. Pinchbeck goes on, considering everything else happening in the world today, you think that aliens overseeing our simulation pull the plug on us because we realize we're sims should be kind of far down on our list of worries. I find it more likely... Daniel says, if we discover our universe is a virtual reality, this would lead to a jump to the next level of the game. Perhaps we start to consciously interact with higher intelligence. Of course, this kind of revelation is familiar to many of us who have tripped on NMDMT, and on DMT, you sometimes enter an indescribable hyperdimension that seems like the control room from which this four-dimensional reality is projected. Daniel, you really think that? Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I think it's definitely worth thinking about. Um, you know, I mean, I mean um, you know, we know there are other dimensions of space-time. We know at, uh, you know, higher dimensions, you know, you'd be able to pass through time the way we pass through space. You know, if there are other forms of uh, consciousness or awareness that exist in those higher dimensions of space-time, 
then certainly they could be orchestrating this reality uh, in, in various respects. When when did this idea first occur to you? I mean, I know you've been into shamanism and metaphysics and alternate realities, consciousness, and all that for quite a while. But when did Bostrom's technological ideas kind of take root? I think that the, the, the simulation hypothesis occurs to, to many people when they smoke uh, NMDMT, uh, dimethyltryptamine, which is a very short-acting psychedelic that's actually part also of the ayahuasca potion, but there you take it in a sort of more low-res form. But when you smoke NMDMT directly, many people have the direct experience of sort of being catapulted at very high speed into this kind of hyperdimensional reality, which feels like, yeah, as I said, kind of like a control room, uh, almost like you're in God's engine room or something. But it's extremely foreign. It's, it's extremely difficult to um, bring back that experience into language or into art. It doesn't really feel like anything uh, of, our, of our culture is a, is, is a, is a reference for it uh, explicitly. Now, when you trip on this, and I must say I have not, do you see things? Is it like a visual experience or is it kind of a connected intuition where you just know certain things? Uh, I mean, you have a um, visual experience. Your whole visual field is replaced uh, by a total other form of information. Um, and uh, actually, they're actually doing some experiments now with people who are congenitally blind from birth, giving them uh, DMT uh, to see what type of uh, visual experience they have. Uh, there's been interesting research into congenital, generally blind people and near-death experience, and they actually do have a totally visual experience of seeing their bodies from above and so on. Hmm. Now, could that be from, I mean, if you, if you buy the reincarnative model, you know, if they're blind in this lifetime and they saw in other lifetimes, wouldn't they kind of have that background experience of being able to see? Yeah, well, I mean, it just opens up a lot of areas of, you know, inquiry uh, that we don't really, you know, have closure on yet. But it is very fascinating. I, I wanted to go back also because you mentioned what's happening with the Amazon. Yes. Uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, first of all, um, you know, I, I had a book that came out a few years ago, How Soon Is Now, which maybe we talked about in a previous show, which was really thinking about the ecological crisis as something like a, a collective initiation, a rite of passage for humanity, and then looking at uh, the kind of uh, system design changes we would have to make in our social, political, and, and technical support systems. Uh, and that's something I'd love to talk with you about a little bit more on this show. Uh, the Amazon has been a big interest of mine. I also have a new book coming out in September called When Plants Dream, which is about ayahuasca, Amazonian shamanism, and the uh, global uh, kind of spread of ayahuasca. Yeah, a, uh, a mutual I, friend of ours, Graham Hancock, goes to the Amazon to have his ayahuasca experiences. And I think you've talked to him recently. Yeah, I've, I've, I've talked to him many times. I'm actually going to be the author of the month for him uh, in September. Oh, congratulations. Plant stream. And uh, yeah, like him, I've also been to the Amazon many times. Um, and, um, yeah, I've done ayahuasca in, in, in many contexts and, and think it's a really extraordinary, um, substance for our time. Really, really something that can help awaken people and, uh, shift their consciousness in a positive direction. Again, the thing that's so out there and makes you think that we're at the, you know, hands of some kind of mad programmer 
is you've got two presidents of two major countries, the head of Brazil and the head of the United States, both of whom deny the role of the Amazon in the ecosphere, in, in you know, keeping the planet alive. And the, and the president of Brazil is forbidding international intervention to help him put out the fires, which he, you know, admits that is beyond Brazil's capabilities to do. Yeah, well, we have a very tragic circumstance, which has been, you know, a part of how our, unfortunately, our industrial capitalist society has evolved over the last decades, where, um, you know, short-term profit is such a powerful inducement to, um, you know, basically it's overriding, you know, the imperatives that we need to, you know, take for our collective survival right now. And unfortunately, nobody really has a game plan on how we overcome that. It would really require the people of the world creating kind of almost like a new uh, social contract. Well, this is what Macron is trying to do at the G7. And I was very heartened that he's, you know, very forthrightly making this a very uh, prominent part of their discussions. Tell you what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Yeah. My guest this morning is Daniel Pinchbeck, who's an author and an old friend of mine from New York, who has written widely on consciousness, shamanism, has worked with native peoples, has been to the Amazon many times, and who's kind of been intrigued with this idea that we're living in a simulation. How many times have we said that on this show, that the other side of midnight is no longer restricted to the hours between dusk and dawn? You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcasters provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night August 24th 2019 
The world is burning. As Macrone said, our house is burning. Daniel, there's an awful lot of people who live in the Amazon. And when I hear that so many thousands of square miles are in flame, it, it, it staggers the mind that someone who is running Brazil has the same mindset as other leaders that, well, as, you know, we can just clear cut it and plant it in, you know, whatever, soybeans or something, and nothing will happen to the planet. How can political leaders be so disconnected from the science that shows us where we could end up? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, who elects? I mean, wh why won't the Democrats have a uh, debate on climate change? You know, because a lot of their funders are, are very wealthy people whose money comes still from fossil fuel interests, um, you know, producing consumer goods that require a lot of, uh, you know, energy and so on. So basically, yeah, we're, we're, we're in a, the whole system is, is pushing us into a doom spiral right now. And, uh, but but wait, hang on, hang on. They live here too, unless they are access to the secret space program, they can go someplace else. If we go down, they go down, and no amount of money will buy them one more breath of fresh air. I think there's a you have to understand the psychology of people who are in, are in different positions and how they become blind to uh, you know certain ways of understanding because you know the, their entire focus is on how they you know interact with certain you know corridors of elite and power structures and so on, you know, and also you know if you're on if you're on top. You know, like the young guys in Silicon Valley who made so many billions over the last decades, you know, it's really hard for you to even envision that the world, you know, could uh, be heading for such a disastrous, uh, you know, situation. You know, you're, you're naturally sort of predisposed to have more of an optimism about the situation. Well, it just seems to me it's like the ostrich burying their heads in the sand, because if you look around, there are more and more clues that things are not right. right. You know, ocean levels, severity of storms, Paradise, California burning down. I mean, it's now the Amazon. It's like, what more has to happen before the bell goes, oh. Nothing more has to happen. In fact, there are things that people really could be doing right now. One of the things that's uh, very interesting is happening right now is a new movement that started in the UK called Extinction Rebellion. Have you heard about it? Uh, honestly, no. So essentially, Extinction Rebellion is a, um, a nonviolent civil disobedience uh, movement uh, that's using um, civil disobedience at, at scale to try to force governments to move faster on climate change. So it started in England, and in April, they had mass protests. They stopped five bridges, and over a 1,000 people got arrested. And right after that, the English parliament issued a um, climate emergency proclamation. And October Extinction Rebellion is going to be um, kind of uh, doing another series of actions all around the world. And basically, they believe that the only way that we're going to be able to influence the situation at this point is we really need a mass citizen uprising. We need people to put their bodies uh, on the line and be willing to get arrested um, at, at large scale. To, uh, kind of like Hong Kong on steroids around the world. Well, I mean, I mean, Hong Kong is is a very powerful uh, situation right now. It's really like, you know, those sort of the last stand of uh, you know democracy and freedom, you know, in in, in that region. 
But um, yeah, so Extinction Rebellion is something that anybody can join or they can start a local chapter. You know, I don't think at this point it makes any more sense to just be a passive observer to what's happening or a passive witness. We have to really get engaged and we have to recognize that our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives are imminently threatened by what, what's being done to the planet right now. And we're going to have to find a way to bring these corporations to a halt. We're going to have to find a way to slow down the juggernaut of destruction. And we're going to have to redirect human activity towards productive channels. And this is all what I laid out in, in my book, How Soon Is Now, that came out in 2017. I really offered a system design alternative where we could think about how, you know, for, so for instance, one of the big problems is our financial system. You know, it really only supports a short-term financial gain. In fact, corporations are forced to maximize uh, shareholder value and short-term profits uh, against all other values. You know, so we would actually have to fundamentally redesign the economic system so that uh, ecosystem health, resilience, the health of local communities was factored in as being just as important as pure economic gain. If we don't bring it, if we don't bring about these changes, we're definitely going to see mass destruction, which a lot of it may already be unpreventable, but we're also going to basically drive ourselves towards extinct to, to extinction in a short period of time. So we really have to get moving in a different direction. And, and there are really ways that people can contribute to that process. One, as I mentioned, is Extinction Rebellion. Climate mobilization is another group that's pressuring governments to move faster on climate change. And uh, then understanding how deep the system change has to be if we want to survive what's happening. Do we have any historical precedent for cultures looking ahead and taking preventive action before they fall off the cliff? Um, well, I mean, we're in a, you know, evolving. I mean, the situation we're in now is, is a very different than any situation that's been faced in the past. And we are seeing some parallels to the 1930s. And we can see, unfortunately, a lot of parallels in the US to the rise of Nazism and fascism, which eventually led to a genocide uh, in, in that region. Uh, we see that in how, for instance, the children are being treated, the immigrant children. You know, they're, they're basically what uh, neo-fascist regimes do is they, is they um, you know, push uh, the shock and the outrage. They do things that are so horrible, and they get people used to that, inured to that level of outrage, that level of shock. So it's a systematic desensitization of the culture. Yes, exactly. And the, and the only way, as I said, people have to, um, you know, resist that by, by, by making productive uh, action as, as a civil society. And um, climate change is definitely one of the areas that we have to fight. Hmm. What about this idea of suppressed technology? I mean, there's a lot of people running for president on the Democratic side. There's some murmurings now about uh, Trump uh, experiencing a, um, a, uh, a primary challenge from the right in the Republican Party. Who of the Democratic candidates, because of course Republicans aren't touching it with the proverbial 20-foot pole, who on the Democratic side has the most aggressive and doable climate uh, approach that you know of. I know Bernie Sanders came out a couple of days ago with a almost $17 trillion plan that uh, obviously shocks people, except when you look at how much we spend on war every year, it's almost trivial to save the planet if it takes that much money. Well, I'm personally a big supporter of Bernie Sanders. I mean, having listened to him for years, I find that he's you know extremely authentic and his record has been 
so straightforward over so many decades. And yeah, I mean, I, I haven't studied his new um, environmental plan in depth, but I've heard great things about it. And I look forward to, you know, looking into it in great depth. And um, yeah, that sounds like, uh, you know, the, the right direction. I mean, essentially, you know, I mean, I mean, what I argue and how soon is now, you know, which is not even the book we're here to talk about today, is that, um, you know, we need to look at things like World War Two, you know, where the U.S., um, you know, after Pearl Harbor, mobilized its entire kind of, uh, you know, resource base for the war effort, you know, so all the factories were redirected to wartime production, mm. um, wealthy were taxed at, you know, over 90% and all of those resources were put into the war, you know, they didn't make private the, cars. The difference they, is that if you don't have people shooting at you, it becomes this academic existential threat that academics and serious people understand, but now, most that people... That might have been the case 10 or 20 years ago, but we're really beyond that point. I mean, you know, 75% of insect biomass has disappeared in the last like 30 years around the planet. I mean, that's like... That's a lot of mosquitoes. Well, I mean, it's, you know, everything that pollinates, everything... Yeah, I'm I'm being somewhat... Well, the bees, look at the bees. But see, again, we go through these benchmarks. The bees were, were the, you know, viral rage a couple, three years ago. Are you seeing any stories anywhere of the bee extinctions, which are continuing? No, it's like we're looking for the newest, latest fad. Just in the same way that that the political elite are, you know, first of all, often sociopathic in in their psychological character, but they're locked into a certain realm of power and privilege where their money is coming from people who profit from the destruction and desecration of the planet. The same is true of the mainstream media. So often they won't report the way they should on these things that, that really should be, you know, the, the, the daily front page, you know, not sports statistics or, you know, Britney Spears, uh, Stubbs or Joe or something. But I've seen numbers like half of the current U.S. population is not watching the nightly news. They're getting their news from Facebook. Where are all the in-depth stories on Facebook covering planetary extinction? Well, I mean, when I open my Facebook, I get a deluge of exactly those stories because of the stuff that I pay attention to. Ah, but see, that's the problem with Facebook. Each little person lives in a bubble, and unless they reach out and look at news beyond their bubble, their bubble will never be intruded by things they don't want to see. So we have millions of bubbles, but they're immiscible. They don't, they don't coalesce when they bump into each other they bounce off so yeah you and i get those stories but people sitting in the red states in the midwest are not if they don't really reach out how do we solve that problem well well, well, i mean honestly the way to solve that problem and i actually tried this if if you read how soon is now i went with a group of ngos environmental ngos to facebook headquarters to basically see if they would uh you know redirect uh, you know, attention more towards what's happening environmentally. But essentially, you know, we're, we're as I said, what's going to sink in... Wait, 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 wait. And what happened? Uh, at that point, we didn't have the leverage to, to, to get much accomplished. It was frustrating. You mean you didn't have but, enough people? But it's essentially, you know, what Facebook and Google show us is that we have these networks that now connect billions of people. So if you're Sergey Brin or you're Mark Zuckerberg, you know, you can basically say by fiat... This is what I want 2 billion people to see today. Mm. So essentially one of them could, you know, have an awakening 
and be like, oh. So Zuckerberg lives here, as far as I know. Richard, let me finish. We're about to bring about our extinction as a species. Why don't I put on my homepage of Facebook or Google everything that people need to know right now, which is basically our human family needs to understand that we've overshot the carrying capacity of the planet, that we only have a very short time to course correct, and that we have to change our agriculture system, our energy system, and so on, and that there are ways we can do this if we can work together for it. See, one of the really interesting things about Sanders' plan, which, of course, is coming after Inslee's plan, who just left the uh, the mm-hmm. Democratic contenders, and a number of other candidates, is that he shows the middle American, the so-called you know kitchen tables issue voter, how this could create 20 million jobs. All those people currently digging coal, which is a dead end. All those people currently sitting in those rusted out you know, ruins of the steel mills and watching steel being made in Japan and China and whatever, there's an alternative of embracing the planet because you can have a really good job if you embrace the planet, according to Bernie's latest plan. Right. I mean, that's, that's basically it. I mean, basically, you know, we have a lot of... Uh... You know, we still have a lot of excess in our society, and we could redirect people's energies, you know, retrain them and reemploy them to bring about this rapid ecological transformation. You know, this is also what I explored in, in How Soon Is Now, and that's incredibly awesome that Sanders has made that so clear. Now the question is, can he get the message out in time? Because, as we know, the Democratic establishment, you know, has, has blocked him. Well, you know, I'm not so sure because uh, who was it? Um, Senator Bennett the other day was basically had a scathing attack on the DNC for these arbitrary rules of who can qualify for the next debate. I see a, a kind of a revolution going on in the ranks. And if enough of the candidates got together and held a forum, how could the Democratic Party say no? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, up to this point, you know, there were a number who wanted to have a debate around climate and it was blocked. So, I mean, and we saw last time, you know. Well, there is going to be a major debate sponsored by MSNBC. I'm not quite sure. It's sometime in the next month, I believe. Well, cool. That'd be great. I mean, really, this is not like my, you know, primary focus. I I don't really, you know, follow the presidential politics. Yeah, but you probably were the badge of activist. And without real world politics, Nothing is going to change, right? But but for me, for, for me, the the level that interests me is understanding and presenting and getting out the information about the system, the the, the the underlying operating system redesign that would need to take place. So, for instance, you know, really shifting the logic of the financial system so that it wasn't just about financial profit, but took into account ecological resilience, you know, the health of local communities, and so on. Um, you know, things like that, things that I, that I write about in the book. Well, you made a very interesting point a couple of minutes ago. You said in the book, you point out that at World War II, when we really did face an obvious and overt threat, we did a whole series of restructured things, the, the Roosevelt administration, that basically taxed wealth at a level that would be required when you're in an all-out war against extinction, And people committed, you know, you had round-the-clock factories, you had manufacturing devoted to winning the war, winning the war, people going around picking up scrap metal, planning victory guard. In other words, the whole consciousness was focused on the goal, which was to win, 
to beat the Nazis and the Japanese. It's going to require that level of commitment now to save the planet. Right. But I don't see that level of political, shall we say, forthright honesty with the voters that we don't have a lot of time left to make radical change that will benefit people. It's not that we're all going to wind up poorer. We're going to wind up richer, but richer in the right kind of way. Where's that massive political educational campaign and who's carrying the ball? Well, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, as I just mentioned, there are many groups that are seeking to, to, to bring about, you know, that awareness, you know, whether it's Greenpeace or Rainforest Action Network or Avaz or, um, you know, uh, Climate Mobilization or Extinction Rebellion. You know, there, there is a huge uh, number of, of uh, you know, nonprofits, you know, and targeted on, on these areas. Now, as we also just discussed, we're kind of repeating ourselves here. You know, the mainstream media, you know, is an obstruction. It's a blockage because so much of the money comes from car advertisements, from fossil fuel related industries and so on. You know, I mean, um, you know, the planned obsolescence even of like smartphones, you know, that, um, you know, require so many conflict minerals and so much fossil fuel to produce these devices and so on. So, you know, we're, we're locked into a suicide system right now. And uh, but there's no doubt that people are becoming aware of that and um, that, the, you know, the tides are shifting, whether it's shifting fast enough, I don't, I don't know. You know, and we, and we can begin, if you want, to tilt back towards the other subjects um, that, for me, you know, all the subjects relate, you know, whether we're talking about the possibility of an occult control system or, uh, you know, alien intelligences, hyperdimensional realities, you know, and ayahuasca, psychedelic visions, you know, or these more really kind of like pragmatic, uh, social, political, and ecological issues. For me, they all form an integrated whole. You raise an interesting point. You talk about an occult control system. Is it possible that our heading at warp nine toward the cliff is not just because we are at the mercy of dumb people, dumb billionaires, uh, closed loops where people have a short-term gain versus long-term view, that basically someone wants us to go through this experience right i mean that's kind of what i'm suggesting in, in my new book the occult control system and something i also touched upon in, in a past book 2012 the return of quetzalcoatl you know that obviously we live in a much bigger and more complex uh, universe and just as there's an ecology of life on earth there may be a much wider ecology of forms of consciousness or intelligence that's distributed through the universe that we're just beginning to get a peek at or come into contact uh, with in a, in a very small way. And it may actually be the future of, of our um, species to, you know, deepen and widen that type of contact and connection, you know, with all different forms of intelligence and, and consciousness across a vast spectrum of, of worlds and dimensions and so on. But it may also be that from where we are now, our history has been shaped, uh, inflected, influenced potentially by a particular uh, group of these entities. And then you have to look at different esoteric traditions like the Gnostics or the Western occult tradition or, or, or you know, indigenous traditions who have a way of understanding and looking at this. Are you familiar with the works of Charles Fort? Uh, a little bit. Fortean phenomena, yes, mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And his kind of major statement based on decades and decades of, you know, kind of 
quietly sifting and correlating and publishing reams of anomalous reports from all over the world. And his bottom line was, we are property. So he was ahead of this idea that instead of being in some kind of digital simulation, some advanced culture just looking to see what happens if their sims react in a certain way when they push the limits, that we're in a more metaphysical, uh, other dimensional control system for purposes which would be, by our lights, totally illogical, almost impossible to, to fathom. Where, where, where are you on that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think one aspect of thinking esoterically and thinking, you know, in a more, I mean, the word occult simply means hidden. Yeah. You know, so, so, so integrating occult and esoteric perspectives is really also integrating layers of paradox and contradiction and, and not having that, that sort of dualistic mindset where something either is or isn't which is also something I, I talked about at length in the cold control system. So, um, yeah. So, you know, on the one hand, you could have this negative thing that says, Oh, we're like food. We're like property. You know, we're like sheep. We're being like, you know, we're, 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 we're told to go to sleep and we're not, you know, we're not allowed to wake up and so on. And there's probably truth to that, you know, but I also like, you know, Rob Brezhny talks about pronoia you know, the, the antidote to paranoia, that actually we're living in the best possible world that we can possibly hope to experience. Is that, is that a new, I've never heard that. Is that a new term? Uh, pronoia? No, he, the book came out many years ago. I love the book. And I totally agree with that also. Like every, each of us are having the best possible experience that we can handle at every moment. And, that, and that's also, you know, just as true as the opposite. Hmm. Pronoia. Okay, well, who, in terms of this latest book, let's let's delve into that. You talk about an occult control system. Do you identify potential controllers? Well, I mean, you know, we have to look at, for instance, the whole uh, abduction saga with the uh, gray aliens. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think in the book I look at uh, Carla Turner's work and uh, David Jacobs, uh, who wrote The Threat. Uh, and what, what, what becomes clear when you sift through, you know, these hundreds or thousands of abduction narratives is some very, very common uh, themes and repeat experiences that really suggest that this is like, you know, entities who have a very malevolent and very negative agenda and have in a way perhaps helped set up like a kind of like trap for humanity to get caught in. Uh, and so you find over and over again. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Are you in, are you including in that pantheon of, 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 writers and authors and chroniclers of this uh, folks like Whitley Strieber who have a very different take on that experience? Yeah. I mean, I, I did talk about Strieber uh, in, in, in my uh, book 2012. And also I had a famously contentious uh, uh, radio show with him where he ended up saying I was not his friend anymore. <laughs> uh, wow. I, I basically challenged uh, what he what he was putting out around the Greys in particular. For people that aren't familiar with Strieber, tell tell them how he comes down on both sides of the equation. Yeah, it's been a while since I've actually delved into his work, so I, I don't want to be imprecise about it. But um, you know, there was a part of him uh, that yeah saw these you know the negative aspects of these experiences, and there was also a more 
naive and you know hopeful side of him that really thought maybe these these savior beings. But I, I do want to go back and just lay out the abduction narrative as, it, as it's commonly expressed and as a thread sure, that you sure. find hundreds of accounts. So essentially, people are taken aboard these ships. They're tormented. Sometimes they're they're abused. Sometimes they're raped. Sometimes sperm and eggs are removed from them. They're often told that there's you know, that they're 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 the parents of hybrid human alien children. They're shown these human uh, ch- uh, hybrid children. They're playing with them. Uh, they're shown films where they're where they're seeing that uh, the Earth is going to go through an ecological holocaust, and the only beings who are going to be able to survive it are going to be these hybrid aliens. Uh, sometimes they're taught how to um, you know operate the alien the gray alien spaceships. And they're told that during this ecological crisis, they're going to be called upon to swoop down and the ships will open up and they'll take in hordes of people and they'll like take them off somewhere. So, so it, it almost feels like, um, you know, we, we have these uh, accounts of crashed flying saucers, recovered alien technologies. I mean, one thing that's always struck me is if you think about these beings being, you know, very futuristic and having a highly advanced technology, how is it possible they would crash their saucers into the rocks in New Mexico or something. I would say that's only happening. That's like a setup. You know, if it did happen, it's a setup that was created so that we would find that technology at that certain juncture in our historical process and then, and then, you know, evaluate it, you know, make use of it, study it, make whatever arrangements or deals we were making with these beings. You know, it's clear to me that this whole thing is a setup that they've contrived. You know, there is an alternative idea. If you have a culture which is so advanced, they've lost all connection with how to keep their technology not only created, but keep it running, and it's all run by computers, and no computers last forever. If you're, I mean, Arthur Clarke wrote a book many, many years ago, The Machine Stops, about Mm -hmm. a hive-like culture where each being lived in this little cell, and then one whole section of the city went dark, and the most adventurous of them went out and he actually went outside. His name was Alvin, I think, in the, in the novel. And he became the progenitor of a whole new view of humanity because the other contemporaries, you know, millions of people had lost all connection with what supported them, what kept them alive. So one can imagine a culture so, quote, advanced, they literally are primitive when the machine stops. Yeah, I really don't think if if they if they traveled to Earth from either another world or from some hyperdimensional reality, and there's a lot of sense of these ships are not you know totally physical in the same way we understand physical objects. I, I really think the idea that they're, they're crashing them into rocks is is totally absurd, and that these were actually plants that were left there for us to uncover. Okay, well, uh, it's, it's an interesting hypothesis, but I I just want people to know there other ways of looking at it. You said something about non-physical. I'll tell you what, we're at the top of the hour. Why don't we hold it there? My guest this morning is Brian Pinch, uh, Brian, Daniel Pinchbeck. And we're talking about, well, something so fundamental. It's like reality. What is reality? What so-called paranormal, a term you know I do not like, events intrude into our reality? And are they part of reality? Because... Ultimately, it's being programmed either at a technological level or maybe metaphysical. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. 